Welcome to Open-Minded Healing, where the topic is alternative health. We will be having conversations with the practitioners that offer a variety of alternative healing modalities, as well as everyday people who have recovered their health outside of the MD's office. Join us with an open mind for conversations that may provide solutions to healing your own body on a mental, physical, and spiritual level. I'm Marla Miller. Let's begin. Welcome back to Open-Minded Healing. Today, my guest is Dr. Glenn Livingston, and we're going to be talking about why overeating, stress eating, and binge eating are so prevalent in our culture and our world today. And all kinds of good stuff about how to stop. Yes. Glenn here will talk to us about how we can figure out why we may have those urges and then how we can address them and turn that around But first of all, I want to say welcome to you, Glenn. Thank you for having me here. It's a delight and an honor. I want to ask if you don't mind sharing with the listeners, what makes you qualified to talk on this subject, like whether through your educational background or your personal experience, maybe you can go into that a little bit. I think my educational background and my personal experience and my work experience kind of put me in a unique position. In short, I'm not just a guy who decided he wanted to work with overeaters. I had a very serious problem with food myself. I lost a war with a chocolate bar in 1982, and I didn't wake up for about 20 years after that. And I was almost 300 pounds and triglycerides through the roof and all types of medical problems where doctors were telling me I might not make it to 40. Um, Mm. I also worked for the food industry along the way. I was on the wrong side of the war, helping them sell those hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt, and all aimed at the bliss point of your reptilian brain without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied. So I kind of have a firsthand experience looking at what they were doing. And I work for the advertising industry. And, you know, if I could tell a little bit more of my story, I think it might be um, illustrative. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. So I I was born in a family of 17 psychotherapists. And (laughs) literally my mom and my dad and my stepmom and my stepdad and my sister and her husband, everybody, when something broke in the house, yeah, we we knew how to ask it how it felt. We didn't really know how to fix it. But but it's important so you understand that being a psychologist was first and foremost my only goal. It's really what was always most important to me. When I was about 17, I discovered that because I'm 6'4", and I've got a modestly muscular makeup, like I'm not, I could never be a competitive bodybuilder, but I'm not a scrawny guy either. And if I worked out a couple hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I was thin back then. Um, I worked out two, three hours a day and I ate boxes of muffins and whole pizzas or two and boxes of chocolate bars and donuts and whatever you could imagine. If it wasn't nailed down, it was going in my mouth. And I thought that was great. I thought it was like a superpower. I thought I'd discovered heaven on earth. And it worked fine, other than the fact that I spent too much time in the bathroom and too much time sleeping. It worked fine until I was in graduate school. And when I was 22, I started commuting two hours each way to see patients and go to classes. And I started helping my, I got married young, my wife at the times with her business. And God forbid she wanted to talk to me when I got home. I didn't have two minutes a day to work out, much less two hours. 
but I found that the food still had a hold of me. I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, when can I get the next pizza? Or, you know, a mm-hmm. couple that just discovered an affair and I'm thinking, um, when can I get to the delicatessen and, you know, dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray into it? And I'm only half kidding. I'm only half kidding. Thank God I never lost anybody. I think I made up for it by studying really hard and working really hard, but I couldn't be a hundred percent present. And that was more troubling to me than the weight was. Mm. I started gaining a little weight back then, but really it was the constant food obsession that really bothered me. Being from the family that I was from, I figured it must be a psychological cause. Like that, there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. And so I went on this journey, which ultimately lasted about 20 years, where I went to see the best psychologist and psychiatrist, and I confessed my soul. And I cried and I screamed and I took medication and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I had a spiritual awakening and all those types of things. But all of them made me a better person, I think. I think I became more compassionate with myself. I think I became compassionate with others. But I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. Um, And I worked my way up to almost 300 pounds back then. I eventually figured it out by changing the paradigm. Rather than a love your inner wounded child back to health paradigm so that you won't want to escape and overeat to get away from it, I decided to become the alpha dog of my own mind. So I took a kind of a tough love approach. And there were three things that flipped that paradigm. One had to do with the work that I was doing in the food industry, because when I saw what they were doing and the tens of millions of dollars they were spending to do it, I said... This has nothing to do with the fact that my mama dropped me in my head when I was a kid or her mama dropped her in her head. It's nothing to do with my personal history. These are powerful external forces, millions and millions of dollars, rocket scientists that are engineering these concoctions that could turn off my ability to know when I'm hungry and when I'm full. Mm. And the advertising industry that could convince me that I needed these things and this is where the good stuff was when it really wasn't. I recognized that those were external forces having nothing to do with my internal psychology. I also remembered from my neurology studies in graduate school that the reptilian brain, which is the seat of the feast and famine response, also fight or flight and mate and reproduce and all the primitive survival responses, Mm -hmm. the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. It doesn't really know love. When it looks at something in the environment, it's like it's playing a bad college drinking game. Do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? eat, mate, or kill, right? The mammalian brain on top of that, whether it evolved or God put it there, it doesn't really matter. But the mammalian brain says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love and your tribe? And then the neocortex says, what impact will that have on your longer-term goals and dreams and your work and your spirituality and your music and your art and everything that we think of that makes us uniquely human? But it's this thing down here, this very primitive part of the brain that, you know, says, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. And it's got the capacity to push the mammalian brain and the neocortex aside and prevent you from thinking rationally when it perceives that you need the resources or like there's a scarce opportunity to acquire calories in a small space for not all that much effort, which is abundant in today's society. And so essentially, I was trying to love myself then, but the thing that was responsible for the problem doesn't know anything about love. And I said, that's Mm. interesting. I'm going to have to be an alpha dog. Let me try being an alpha dog of my own mind. And 
You know, when an alpha, let's say in a wolf pack, when an alpha is challenged for leadership, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Like it growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It's a, it's a very aggressive approach. And so all this work I was doing to nurture my inner wounded child back to health in my estimation was giving credence to this thing. Like if I was at Starbucks and I saw a chocolate bar and I heard a voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. Forget about your silly rules. You can start your diet again tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. Yeah. Um, and I said, oh, I must need love if I'm thinking about that. Essentially, I'm like giving this thing more energy and it's pushing it all out of the way. So here's what I did instead, which is embarrassing for a psychologist with my credentials and, you know, <laughs> and, and stature. This is always a hard part of the interview for me. I decided that I was going to have to clearly define when this thing was active. Yeah. In order to do that, I did it a very bright line, like a line on the sand, so that I knew when I was about to cross it. So one of the first lines that I made was, it was a rule that said, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have it on Saturdays and no more than two ounces. And that way, when I heard this thing saying, go ahead, Glenn, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. You worked out hard enough. It won't really make a difference. I could, at the very least, wake up and say, whoa, whoa. That's not me. That's my reptilian brain. Now, the embarrassing part is it didn't call it my reptilian brain because I wasn't going to teach this stuff. It was just a very internal thing. I called it my inner pig. And I would say, wait a minute. My inner pig is squealing for pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I don't eat chocolate during the week. On a Wednesday, <laughs> chocolate is pig slop. As Rude and crude as that sounds, and as much as I know now that it doesn't have to be called a pig, it can be called a food monster. So if you take offense at that, you don't have to do it. It's just not something you want to love back to health. It would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse, the moment of temptation to make the right choice. It was like a tripwire that would wake me up. Did I always make the right choice? No, not right away. I had to work out how to convince myself to make the right choice once I was awake. What was a miracle right away is it no longer felt like a mysterious force inside of me. I mean, you know, when I went to Overeaters Anonymous, they told me that it was a chronic, mysterious, progressive disease. And, you know, I can't resist even if I wanted to. And I had to admit that I was powerless and talk to a sponsor every day. And I didn't feel like that anymore. Yeah. I didn't feel like that anymore. I felt like, okay, there's this primitive part of my brain that's waking up and I have to wake up and just take control because I can take control of my bodily organs. Marla, if I really had to pee right now, I would tell my bladder, I'm sorry, but I'm talking to Marla. I have this important appointment. I'll take care of you later. Like I'm in control, not my bladder. So the same thing here. I'm in control, not my reptilian brain. And there were a variety of things that I did in order to empower my rational thought once I was woken up. The most important thing and the original thing that I did that I recovered personally from before I discovered all the rest was to fix my thinking. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me, that's my pig. It's squealing for pig slop, but why does it think I should break my rule? I made this solemn rule that I'm not going to have chocolate during the week. I'd say, okay, pig, why do you think I should have chocolate now? Why should I break my rules and binge on chocolate? Mm -hmm. And it would come up with these ideas like, well, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Then I would logically disempower those ideas. I, I recognized that it always tended to contain a half-truth and a bigger lie. So it seems like it would be just as easy to start tomorrow because I worked out today and I could get away with it. However, 
by the principle of neuroplasticity, I did a little research, what fires together, wires together. Mm -hmm. So if I have a craving for chocolate today and the thought, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, and then I have the chocolate, I will have reinforced the craving and will have reinforced the thought. So I'll have a deeper craving for chocolate tomorrow, and I'll be more likely to say, just start tomorrow, tomorrow. So I can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. And I essentially disputed what the pig was saying. What that did was it took away my justifications for binging. It was no longer comfortable. If I wanted to binge, if I wanted to eat the chocolate, I had to consciously and purposely do it. I couldn't make these rationalizations for it. So I call this fixing your thinking with rational disputation. And essentially, that's how I recovered. For a lot of years, I kept a journal all the different things the pig said, all the different reasons it was wrong. In 2015, as I was getting divorced, I decided that I was going to write a book because I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, um, complications with my ex-wife. I was going to write a book and do something meaningful. So I wrote the story. I kind of wrote it like an allegory, me versus my inner pig. I had no idea that it was going to take off the way that it has. But I published the book. And about a year later, it just absolutely took off on its own accord. I now have more than a million readers. I've written seven more books. My That's amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. So I work with thousands of people and I've got coaches that work with me. And I'm at a bookstore and people will sometimes point at me and say, I don't know your name, but aren't you the pig guy? Which is (laughs) not really how I wanted to be known in this world, but I'll take it. Well, that's so interesting. And I know there are a lot of people, including myself, that go down that road of chocolate cravings. But I like the way you kind of disassociate that primal part of the brain, like almost give it its own identity apart from you. Yeah. So that you're talking to it in that way and you can argue with it or disagree rather than, like you said, feeling it's your own wounded heart and trying to go at it from a sympathetic standpoint that that reptilian brain doesn't even understand or identify with. It's very interesting. I'm still a sympathetic guy. And if you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. Um, But (laughs) I discovered you just won't give a chocolate bar a hug. (laughs) I won't give a chocolate bar a hug. Well, I've discovered that it's like having a roaring fire in a well contained fireplace in your living room. It's actually an asset, not a liability. In this analogy, a metaphor is this an analogy or a metaphor? I don't know. My mother was an English teacher. I have a block against these things. Um, the roaring fire is like your emotions. And the pig pokes holes in the fireplace with its justifications. So if you plug up those holes, it's a lot quicker and easier to contain the fire than it is to put it out. You know, if I had to figure out where that fire came from, and I eventually did, but it didn't really help. My mom was... She was very depressed and anxious when I was an infant because my father was a captain and they were going to send him to Vietnam and my grandfather had just gotten out of jail. And she she didn't have the wherewithal to really love me and you know take care of me the way that a mother should take care of a an infant or a one-year-old. And so she used to feed me chocolate all the time. She Mm -hmm. actually put up a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup on the floor. But see, when I discovered that. My inner pig got all happy. You would have thought that that would cure the problem now that I found the root of the problem. But my inner pig actually got all happy and said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can 
fix the marriage or get out of it and find the love of your life, you're going to have to keep right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more right now. So you see the way that voice of, but that's how the voice of justification interferes with any progress the emotional resolution would would have. So I, I tell my clients now, I want you to resolve your emotional trauma. I, you know, I'm still a psychologist. I, I don't practice that way anymore, but I want you to have a therapist and resolve your emotional trauma. But that could take five or 10 years. You know, there's some forms are a little quicker, but that could take five or 10 years. We could get you to sever the link between those emotions and build that fireplace you know, in like 30 to 60 days. So why spend five or 10 years, you know, putting out the fire when you can stop the damage much more quickly? Yeah. Well, I was thinking of the times that I've been able to do something kind of cold turkey and stop whatever the habit is. It's been only when I have like the strong reason why I'm doing it. Like Mm -hmm. that there's something greater that I want other than that chocolate bar. You know, I just think for me, it was the autoimmune disease when I envisioned the pain that this was going to create down the road. And I cannot tolerate pain. And it was like I was more scared of the pain that might come than giving up sugar at the time. But that was a pretty strong reason why. And so I was able to do it because I looked at it like if I pick up this thing with sugar in it, it's going to cause me severe pain. Mm-hmm. But typically, I don't have that compelling of a reason. Others maybe don't either. So I don't know if there's there, a way to. There is a way. There is a way. First of all, a part of our process is digging for that reason why. And you start with a simple rule that you'd like to follow. And it's important that it's a low bar. Because it's going to take me a couple of seconds to explain. Yeah. Because there are a couple of components to it. But motivation comes and goes. And when you're at the highest level of motivation, you can jump over the highest food bars, right? Mm -hmm. But one day you're going to wake up and you're not going to have your mojo. And then you're going to say, I don't feel like going to the gym or I don't feel like avoiding chocolate this week. So for this reason, we start people with a low bar unless there's some urgency from the doctor, one simple rule that you could and would do. An example might be, there was this truck driver who had to eat at a fast food restaurant three times a day. And he said, I can't stop doing that. I'm on the road all day long, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And what happened with that was it made a difference. Maybe a thousand calories or so a day he wasn't having, and he started to see a little bit of a difference. But because it was something that he could and would do even when he didn't feel motivated, he observed himself doing it every day. And the difference between doing something, a little thing every day, and feeling like you're failing every day is night and day. You no longer feel powerless. You feel like, I can actually master my impulses. I could be the master of my own fate. Then your identity function starts to kick in. So you say to yourself, you know what? I've been doing this about a month now. I must be a person who doesn't go back for seconds. I wonder what else that kind of person would do. See that the brain has identity as a kind of a shortcut. So it doesn't have to make decisions all the time. I'm the kind of person who, that's what you want. You want these small habits to add up to, I'm the kind of person who doesn't go back for seconds. I'm the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week. Well, what else does that kind of person do? Maybe they put out their gym clothes before they go to bed when they're at home, right? 
or maybe before they walk into the fast food restaurant, they write down exactly what they're going to have. So they're not making decisions at the moment of temptation. So then you add another small little habit. And before you know it, you're building up this identity as someone who's slowly, you're much more in control, you're slowly losing weight, you have confidence, you're starting to collect evidence of success instead of evidence of failure. Most people walk around going, why can't I stop eating? Why can't I stop eating? And I, I tell them that if I hear that one more time, I'm going to climb up on top of a clock tower with aluminum foil on top of my head and start screaming. <laughs> no, but but I, not, that, not that I don't understand what it's like because I was there. But it's a self-perpetuating question because the questions that we ask ourselves determine the evidence that we collect. Mm -hmm. If you say, why can't I stop eating? Why can't I stop eating? Why can't I stop eating? Then you will perpetually be looking for evidence that you can't stop eating. Yeah. If you look for it, you're going to find it and you're going to start to trigger your identity function to say, well, I must be a person who can't stop eating. What's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me, right? So it's very important to switch to something that you can do and collect evidence of success every day rather than focusing on what you can't do or what you fail at. Does it make sense? Yeah. Oh, total sense. I remember there's a book called The Kaizen Way, I think is the title, but mm -hmm. it's a Japanese term of one small step. And there are lots of examples in it of how someone was trying to get this guy to quit smoking, but he used just one little step. He didn't tell him you have to quit and not smoke. He said, every time that you feel like smoking, just call me and tell me that you feel like smoking. And then if you want to go smoke, smoke, mm -hmm. you know, but it was like, that was the very first step was kind of making a human connection, admitting when he was having that craving. And over time that led to this guy being able to quit and never go back to it. Probably like you're saying, the neuroplasticity and the many successes are better than having such a high goal and then you fail repeatedly and you and, feel and, terrible. And, and it beats the motivation problem, right? It beats the rah-rah, I just read this diet book over the weekend and I've prepared, I'm going to do it all on Monday. And then, you know, it goes out the window by Monday night when you're driving past the fast food place on the way home. Yeah. Yeah, it, it beats that problem. We we also have ways of looking for the big why. So if, when someone says, I'll never go back for seconds. I will say, okay, I want you to imagine that it's 90 days from now and you didn't go back for seconds. I know that your inner pig says that's impossible for all sorts of reasons. Let's just put that aside for now. What if you could? What if you could do it? How would your life be different and better? And they'll say, well, I don't think I would have lost all the weight, but I'm probably 10 or 20 pounds thinner, right? And I'm probably not obsessing about food all day long because I know I can't go back until the next meal. And I've got a little more energy and maybe my skin is a little clearer and maybe I'm a little less inflamed and so my knees don't hurt as much. And then we go through all of those and we say, well, what's important about that? Why, why is it important that your knees don't hurt as much? Well, you know, I'm a trucker and this is my job day in and day out. It's a quality of life thing. It just means everything. I'll be in a much better mood. And why is it important that you're in a much better mood? Well, I don't see my girlfriend that often, and I'm so exhausted when I see her. It would be nice to have energy. And then you kind of dig for what the big why is, like what's really motivating that person. And you emphasize and exaggerate what those motivations are. And they're very rule-specific. When, when you have a different rule, you'll find that there's a kind of slightly different big why. So you paint the picture as much as you can. And you also paint a picture, we call it the big why not, of the ghost of Christmas future. Because most people think, because their pig has them convinced that they're treading water, you could just start this next month, 
right? It doesn't really matter if you keep eating like this the rest of the year. You can start in January 1st. Well, project yourself out for five years and pretend like you don't change anything. What's going to be different? Most people, if they go through that exercise, say, oh, well, I could be in a wheelchair or you know, I could have prediabetes or diabetes or I might not be here. I could have a heart attack or a stroke, you know? Yeah. Or project yourself out 10 years. And so you ask for a visit from the ghost of Christmas future to help scare you straight. And you simultaneously look for all the positives and you put it all together. And then you have to program it into your life in some way. So, you know, I have a statement that I read every single day out loud in the morning before my first meal. It's only a paragraph or two long, but it reminds me of what my personal big why is. You mean something so, you wrote for yourself or yeah, like a quote? I can read it for something I wrote for myself. I can read it for you if you want me to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear it. Give me a second to get it up. Yeah. Um, okay. Every morning I read this. I comply with my food plan and refute the pig 100% of the time to maintain my mobility and walk in the world as a healthy, energetic, confident, thin man who radiates a smiling presence. I never have to recover from a meal. I'm confident in my ability to have a romantic and passionate relationship with a woman I love. I'm leading my company to true greatness as someone who walks the walk. I inspire millions and I'm a productivity machine with a secure $200,000 salary. That's in a nutshell why I do what I do. That's great to have that in front of you every morning before your first meal. And it is what you said. It's how you word things that brings more of that into your life. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you're focusing on I'm so unhealthy, using certain terms like unhealthy, Rather than I'm a vibrant, healthy person, you know, you are asking the universe to show you more of whatever you're talking about. And even when you make a mistake, let's say I had five cupcakes. I'll say I had five cupcakes. I didn't have 15 cupcakes. How did I stop at five? What did I do? And what can I learn from that? And then you can ask, well, what caused me to have the cupcakes in the first place? Now, here's the other part. This is what my latest book is about. Basically, the evolution of my work, which is called The Future Cravings. Basically, the evolution of it was my own personal journey through a journal where I fixed my thinking about food. I would correct the pig's rationalizations to getting really good at fixing other people's thinking fast. We, we keep very careful track of the results. And after working with 2,000 clients, we saw that for the people that reported back to us, we could get an 89.4% reduction in overeating episodes within 30 days, mostly by teaching them how to fix their thinking. However, it drops off some after about six months to like 60, 55, 60%. But that's really split into people who keep using the tools and the people that don't. And the people that keep using it are doing well. Why do people stop using the tools? Because they come to this point where they say, well, I know this is wrong. I know why it's wrong. I don't have any excuses, but screw it. I'm just going to do it anyway. We call it the screw it, just do it in response, right? And I got very curious to figure out why that response occurs and what I could do about it. Because that's the next step in the evolution of, you know, really giving people more permanent yeah. health. In a nutshell, it turns out that it's organismic distress. And that can take several forms. It could be a lack of proper nutrition. So I would find that people would report to me they had the screw it, just do it response when I analyzed their day and the day before because they skipped breakfast or they had something really high glycemic for 
or dessert last night, which they don't ordinarily do. They threw their physiology out of whack. Or they weren't getting enough greens or they weren't eating enough beans or lean proteins or you know, the things that kind of even out their blood sugar and, and their hormonal balance and everything like that. So authentic nutrition, regularly, reliably nutrifying yourself throughout the day while you're trying to defeat your cravings does wonders, mm. does wonders. If you want to, if you want to do intermittent fasting or one meal a day or something like that, do it after you've beaten the cravings, do it after you've gotten through these extinction curves. So that's one thing was authentic nutrition. And that made a tremendous difference. It was hard to convince people to do that because people get very wedded to their ways of eating, but that made a tremendous difference. The other thing, one of the other things, is what I would call the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. We have two nervous systems. We have the sympathetic nervous system, which is our emergency response system. It gets us revved up to fight or flight, to flee or free, or to eat or starve, right? It looks for emergency responses, and it pushes aside our rational brain to make sure that we do what we need to do to stay alive. Yeah. And it's almost like when there's a certain level of organismic distress, like not enough nutrition, the brain says, okay, forget of all, all of your silly plans. You need to get calories right now. Yeah. And it, you know, stop analyzing the quality, just go get calories right now. That can even happen if there's just a scarce opportunity, if it perceives there to be a scarce opportunity. And a hundred thousand years ago, opportunities to acquire calories and nutrition were always scarce, Yeah, right? So the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of calories available across the street in the convenience store, mm. and when you walk out of the convenience store, there are hundreds of thousands calories available across that street in another convenience store. It's overwhelming to the brain. It really stimulates that screw it, just do it response because, oh my God, this is such an opportunity. So it helps to calm that response, yeah. calm the emergency response. Something simple that you can do to calm that response is called 7-11 breathing. My friend Lori Hammond taught me this. If you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, I'm not doing it right now because it takes a lot of time, but if you do that a couple of times, you're telling your brain that there's no emergency here and you're moving it from a state of urgent doing to calm reflection, to just being. You're moving from doing to being. It's called activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system that says it's okay to rest and digest and think and strategize. So that restores your rational thinking. So if you just take a few 7-Eleven breaths every time before you eat, then you're much more likely to be eating from a calm, rational place. And if that's all, if that's all you took from this interview, you'd be doing much, much better. Yeah, I've seen that in action, even with myself where I'll just want to go eat something that may not be great. But if I take that time and I go meditate, I realize I'm not starving. I don't need that. Like once I get into that meditative state, it goes away. So that's in line with what you're saying, I think. And I love the breathing exercises. That's something that anyone can do very quickly and get back into that sympathetic state. Uh, the parasympathetic state. parasympathetic, you're, you're, sorry. <laughs> your breath is always with you. The first clue that I had that this would work, I had lunch with a woman who was asking me about what I did and I explained you know, the books that I wrote. And she's, she said, well, I used to binge eat until I started doing 20 minutes of yoga. That was my first clue. What was it about yoga? And then I asked a bunch of yoga instructors 
And they explain that it's designed to take you out of your sympathetic and into your parasympathetic system. So that makes a big difference. The other thing that you can do with that space, the other thing that can cause organismic distress or create the Scourge as Do-It response is having to make too many decisions over the course of the day. Not just food decisions, although those are the worst, but decisions, decisions like handling too many emails. Do I spam it? Do I forward it? Do I delegate it? Do I reply to it right now? Do I just delete it? It burns a little bit of brain glucose every time you do that, that part of your brain that is responsible for your willpower. Willpower is not like this magic thing that some people have and some people don't. It's more like gas in the tank. And we wake up with a certain amount of it in the morning and we spend it over the course of the day by making decisions. So you can make better decisions in the morning than you can make at night. This is why so many people struggle with nighttime overeating. By the way, if you do, try to make your food decisions in the morning and you know, put out your food for the night before you leave for work and you'll do better. And and so if I got people to take a couple of five-minute breaks per day, just five minutes a day, where they stepped out of the rat race, they put their phone down, they turned their computer off, they walked away from people five minutes a day. You can do 7-Eleven breaths along with this. It made a world of difference. It was just like a decision-free break. And then looking at your most difficult food decisions and slowly building up a set of rules which make the decisions for you ahead of time so you don't have to agonize over them at the moment. Let me illustrate that. The standard advice in our culture is to eat healthy 90% of the time and indulge about 10% of the time. You know, anything in moderation, that kind of thing. That might be a good idea in theory, but there's no guidance about how to choose the 90% versus the 10%. And so every time you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, someone told me they don't serve them there anymore. I, I kind of stopped eating chocolate after a while. But if you're in front of a chocolate bar at the coffee shop, if you think, well, I eat healthy 90% of the time and I indulge 10% of the time, is this the 90% or the 10%? You're making chocolate decisions all the time, all week long. But if you say, I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends after a good workout or no more than two ounces, all of your chocolate decisions are made for you. You don't have to burn your willpower. You can preserve it for more important things. You actually become a person who just doesn't eat chocolate during the week and you trigger your identity function and all those good things that we talked about. I think that's great. A great piece of advice is to plan out a rule before you're faced with your temptation. Especially in extremely tempting situations like, you know, at holiday parties or restaurants where you tend to overindulge. Make your decisions beforehand. Write write them down before you go in. Yeah, that's what I've been doing because I used to go into this coffee shop. Well, recently this week (laughs) that has an eggnog latte. So I have the coconut milk and a little less espresso than they put in it. You know, I try and doctor it in a better way, but I used to get something along with it. You know, you look in the case and I'm like, I'll have that gluten-free, whatever. But now I'm like, okay, when I go in, that particular coffee is good enough on its own. I don't need this other thing out of the bakery case. So I try and savor that, but I had to make that a rule yeah. Before I went in there again and be like, yeah, it'll make me content just to have the drink without anything else. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And after a while, you won't crave those baked goods along with a latte because we don't crave things that we know we're never going to do. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's the brain is very efficient. It will push the cravings for a while to see if it might change your mind. There there are some evolutionary reasons for that we can talk about if you want to. But if you stick with it, 
you know, on a daily habit, if you stick with it for about 25, 30 days, you really won't have cravings anymore. It'll, yeah. it'll just seem like you're a person that doesn't do that. The other thing I do, I will drink a lot of tea, hot tea, herbal, with no sugar or anything. But whenever I start to feel either hungry sometimes or sometimes when I'm bored or even stressed or whatever, I find taking that time to slowly drink a cup of tea seems to alleviate a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if it's because it's hot, so you can't drink it fast and you're allowing your body to relax longer. I don't know what it is about the tea. Well, it's hot and you can't drink it fast and you couldn't be drinking a cup of tea if there was a real emergency. If you were being chased by a hungry bear, you couldn't be drinking a cup of tea slowly and gently. So it it activates that calming part of the nervous system. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Now you said you had some information on the evolutionary portion you said if you want to get into well, that. So let's talk about cravings. This is a lot of misunderstanding about cravings. And I want to talk about three important things about cravings. One, why they're healthy and not a sign of a sick or diseased mind. Two, what it takes to go through an extinction curve so that the cravings don't bother you anymore and why it doesn't go up and down in a straight line. And three, I want to talk about why they come back and what people do wrong to make them come back. I'm going to talk about, let's talk about a caveman 100,000 years ago. I'm going to call him Thag, T-H-A-G. I don't know why. I just like that name. Uh, (laughs) And uh, by the way, I don't really think there was such a thing as food addiction or overeating 100,000 years ago. I don't think Thag was sitting around saying, Oi, Marta, eat too much mammoth. Look horrible. Look away. Look away, Marta. I don't don't think that was happening. Um, 100,000 years ago, it was critical that we had very strong cravings that would motivate us to learn how to identify food and then do what was necessary to get it. Food was much scarcer. We didn't have these hyperpalatable concoctions, these food-like substances that are manufactured by industry. Um, And if we didn't have that motivation, we would starve. And so people with stronger cravings actually have healthier brains. I know they think that they're sick or there's something wrong with them, but if you have a stronger craving, you have a healthier brain. And the very same mechanism, which is responsible for forming cravings, is also responsible for extinguishing them. You're going to understand why in a moment. But why that's important is that if you can have cravings, that means that your mechanism is not broken. People think I'm broken. I can't ever get over this. I can't ever extinguish my cravings. But if you can have a craving, you can extinguish it because it's the very same part of the brain that does this. Okay. So 100,000 years ago, Thag is roaming around looking for food and he sees a monkey. And he follows that monkey and that monkey leads him to a banana tree. Thag engorges himself on bananas and takes as many back for his wife and family as he can. And his brain forms an association. Monkeys equals bananas, right? The next time Thag sees the monkey, he immediately gets cravings for bananas. And he's motivated to go do everything that's necessary to find the banana tree with the monkey's assistance. As a matter of fact, this behavior starts to get automated so he doesn't even have to think about it. He just knows that he's happier when he sees the monkey and he's, you know, going off to the banana tree like we might be driving over to 7-Eleven to get a bag or a box or a container, right? 
Um, in this case, the monkey is called a food stimulus. Um, it's something that's associated with a craving for bananas because it led to a reward in the past. Um, cravings are not unitary phenomenon. They're associated with, with particular food stimuli. So Thag might also have found bananas when he saw trees blowing in the wind in a particular way. Maybe they respond to the wind in a particular way. That would be another food stimulus for the bananas. If for some reason he extinguished the food stimulus for the for the monkey and he wasn't getting the cravings because the monkey wasn't leading to the tree anymore, um, he would still get the cravings when he saw those trees blowing in the wind. Okay. Now imagine that Thag follows a monkey, but it doesn't lead to bananas because you know the bananas in that area are starting to be worn down, and the monkey leads them to an empty tree. Thag says, other than maybe cursing under his breath or something like that, do you think that it would behoove him to say, I'm not going to follow monkeys anymore? Would that be the right decision for survival, the first time that the monkey doesn't lead to a tree? No, he'd still think it could happen. Yeah, because following a monkey that leads you to a banana tree sometimes is more useful than no monkey at all, or than, than just going on your own and trying to find the bananas. As a matter of fact, following a monkey that led to a banana tree 20% of the time would still be more lucrative for him than just trying to have to find them with no food stimuli whatsoever. So what happens is, when following the monkey fails for the first time, Thag's brain doesn't give up, it actually doubles down. It secretes almost twice as much dopamine to get him to do it. Um, if he doesn't follow it, it reduces dopamine to make him miserable. Um, uh -huh. Because the brain doesn't want to give up that learning. The brain's job is to acquire calories as efficiently and reliably as possible. It doesn't want to give up that learning. So it's testing to see maybe the bananas have become randomly available. Yeah. This is why randomly reinforcing your cravings is the worst thing that you could do if you're struggling with a craving. If you feel tortured and give in at random, yeah. your brain thinks, oh, this food stimulus has become randomly available. I have to try even harder to get it, right? Oh. So you really need to make a decision to power through the extinction curve. It looks something like this. Let's say you're craving pizza on the way home from work and you're stopping every day and having four slices and you're developing a little bit of a pouch and you say, or a punch, and you say, I'm going to have to stop doing that. I make a rule that I never eat pizza on the way home from work. Most people think that the craving should go like this. Down, down in a straight line, right? It's not really what happens. Because of the phenomenon we just talked about it, first there's a little honeymoon period and then it shoots up higher than you've ever had it before, right? If you power through that and you don't reinforce that and yeah. you let it drop, then it starts to come pretty far straight down with a couple of little bursts somewhere around the 25 to 30 day mark, okay? Oh. Um, most people at this point say, F-U-C-K, this is not working. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> right? They think, oh, I was doing great, but no, this is torturous. I'm going to be tortured forever. And your inner pig will tell you, oh, you're definitely going to be tortured forever. you got to stop now. But what you want to do is power all the way through. When you get to the end, the brain doesn't erase the craving. Learning is never erased because the brain is a calorie acquisition machine. However, it's also a very efficient calorie acquisition machine. So it will label the craving as dormant. 
will no longer be bothered when you pass that particular food stimulus with the craving until you give in again. Now, the last thing that confuses people about this is that, let's say you also happen to play poker every couple of months with the girls, and they always have pizza, and you really enjoy your poker game with pizza with the girls. And you go to a poker game, and all of a sudden, you get this incredible craving for pizza. And you think, I thought I took care of this already. I, this obviously doesn't work. I failed. And so you have the pizza. And I, but you didn't fail. You succeeded in extinguishing the pizza place on the way home as a food stimulus for cravings. But you didn't extinguish the poker with the girls as a stimulus for pizza cravings. So as a practical matter, what you need to do if you're in trouble with pizza is make a list of the different food stimuli, different situations which you find yourself craving pizza and figure out a rule for each of them, what you're going to do. If it's an infrequent stimulus like the poker game, send an email to yourself to arrive around that day to remind you why you're not doing this. Maybe there'll be some special steps you're taking, like taking a I don't know, a bunch of bananas or a, a salad or some non-alcoholic beer or something that's going to be soothing to you at the um, poker game. So you'll have that support. You got to power through that extinction curve also. Some people let this throw them and say, well, this sounds impossible, but 80% of people's cravings is usually attached to one or two stimuli. And if they consciously and purposely sit down and make a list, most people can can wipe it out in a couple of months. So those are the things people don't really understand about how to extinguish cravings. Yeah, that's very interesting to be at the peak. So when someone is extinguishing it and then it comes back, you know, stronger in that moment where you said, if they just get past that, then it'll go back down. Mm -hmm. How long does that take? One incident you're talking about? Uh, the, the behavioral literature about extinction curves talks about exposures. So in the case of passing the pizza place every day, you have a daily exposure. Somewhere between 21 and 30 exposures is when the um, the honeymoon period is like, you know, between two and seven exposures. Then the, I call it the where, where the F is my pizza. <laughs> it's, it's a little temper tantrum. The extinction burst is the technical term for it. That's around the seven to 10 exposures. And then it comes all the way down somewhere around 21 to 30, you have the two or three little blurbs and then by 30 exposures, you're done. So you're saying it's seven to 10 exposures if they just deny themselves that one time, or you're saying yes, the but seventh, I don't like, eighth, I, I, ninth, 10th time, they have to keep denying it. You got to keep doing it. You, you yeah. got you to keep doing it. I don't like the word deny though, because that focuses on deprivation. You are... Your pig is denying you the experience of being thin and healthy and free from cardiovascular disease and, you know, free from worries and food obsession and, you know, the confidence to relate to other people. Your pig is denying all of those things to you by making you continue to eat the pizza. And rather than focusing on the denial, I think about all the things I'm going to get fairly quickly if I power through this extinction curve. And then I want to focus on other things I could authentically do. Like what what was it doing for me? Is it was just a distraction? Maybe I just need to take a break on the way home. Maybe it's too long a drive. Maybe I need to go get a cup of tea. Maybe I need to go get a newspaper. Maybe I need to stop at the botanical gardens and walk around for five minutes. You know, people will take a break to go get pizza, but they won't take a break to just take a break. How about you take a break to just take? So figure out how you can feed your authentic self um, at the same time. And then don't white knuckle it. Um, 
you know, denying yourself that pleasurable experience of dopamine, figure out what your list of things that make you happy really is. For me, I've got a list of old movies that always make me happy if I need them, like, uh, you know, Blazing Saddles or The Man with Two Brains from Steve Martin. Um, it could be, because my cat Theo, he makes me happy. He's really annoying, but he makes me happy. It could be walking on the beach. It could be looking at old pictures of your kids. What are the things that give you that dopamine? The odds are that at the moment you're turning for the dopamine fix with the pizza, that you're really, you could fulfill that with other ways of getting the dopamine and make sure you're attending yeah. to your nutrition. Make sure that you're eating enough. Don't take the extinction curve lightly. Make a rule or a set of rules that focuses on one curve at a time. Don't go into battle with a plastic helmet. Know that this is kind of a serious thing. When you get through, you're not going to be bothered anymore. So it's a little work now for freedom forever versus easy now, but torture forever with the craving. So I, I think yeah. it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I like that idea of what can raise your dopamine when you know it's dopamine is the issue. So rather than the pizza or whatever it is, I really like your idea of having something ahead of time that you can reflect on easily and quickly in that moment. So either if you write down things that you're grateful for or things that you love when you think about them or that make you laugh, you know, if you can't recall them quickly enough in your head, but if you had a little list that you could reflect on or a little vision board, even pictures of your cat, your whatever it is that makes yeah, you happy. Exactly. All of this has been really interesting and given me a different look into why me or the listeners have those cravings, like getting really specific. And I really enjoyed hearing all this information. So where can people find you if they want to learn more about this or work with you? And where can they find your books? And what's the name of the newest one you have out? Everything starts at defeatyourcravings.com. If you go to defeatyourcravings.com and click the big blue button for the free reader bonuses, you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. The traditional right. copies have, you know, Audible and paperback have traditional charges, but you get a free copy in the electronic formats. I will give you a set of food plan starter templates. So these are example rules for different dietary philosophies that you can use to select your one simple rule from and then build from there. And I call them starter templates because I'm I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD. I'm not a dietitian. So the philosophy, the method is diet agnostic. As long as you're not trying to starve yourself, if you're nutrifying yourself and you know not trying to lose weight too quickly, this will help you, can help you. I'm not legally allowed to say well, but it, I don't know people that it yeah. doesn't if they really try hard. Um, <laughs> and I know that it's a lot of information and it sounds a little harsh to have a pig inside of you. Like, why does Marla have this? doctor with a pig inside of I'm on, on the show. So I recorded a bunch of full-length sample sessions, which you'll also get for free. So you can hear how it takes people from feeling overwhelmed and powerless and despairing about food to feeling confident and hopeful and enthusiastic in just one session. So I'll let defeatyourcravings.com, defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button, sign up for the reader bonus list, and we'll take care of you. That's very generous and sounds pretty awesome. So thank you again for being here today. I really appreciate it. I thank you for having me. It was fun. Be sure and follow Open-Minded Healing so you'll get every new episode as soon as it's released each Tuesday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.